welcome to another look into the life and message of Elizabeth Elliot. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says, and underneath are the everlasting arms. As this podcast series continues in the coming weeks, we'll hear from family, friends, and others who were influenced by Elizabeth's life and message. Today we begin an extended series on what was known as Operation Alka. Today we'll hear about a well-known Christian who had some advice for Elizabeth that we could take to heart too, and about an avenue of obedience. These two radio programs originally aired in January of 1989. This is an extended look into Elizabeth's time in Ecuador, and it should last us about half a year. Can you commit to taking that six-month journey with us to learn more about what happened in Ecuador? Well, in our first program in that extended series today, we hear about one of Elizabeth's heroes. Her daughter, Valerie Shepard, tells us about one of her mother's favorite Christian writers. Have you heard of the book, A Chance to Die? It's about Amy Carmichael, and it's an amazing book. Uh, She did a lot of hard work uh, to read up on her, went to Donovore twice, talked, of course, a lot to the Donovore Fellowship in England, and uh, did a beautiful, beautiful book of her life. I remember her saying as an adult, underneath are the everlasting arms. And so many of you who have heard Gateway to Joy, she always started with that. Um, You are loved with an everlasting love and underneath are the everlasting arms. And of course that was lived by her uh, in her, her expression of acceptance of what God had done. He had taken her husband, her acceptance of how the Alcas or the Kichwas sometimes treated her, her willingness to serve without uh, unfair and without saying to anybody, look at me, everybody, look at what I've done. She was uh, completely secure in what God had called her to do. And it was not, it was always not about her. And this is what I finally learned when I was about 40. It's not about me. And the fact that I am Jim and Elizabeth Elliot's daughter, it's about Christ and what he has done for us. So she she showed that to me, that God's love is complete. It's not people that we're looking for um, praise and admiration from. It's simply uh, knowing that God loves us because we're his children. And I depended completely on her word. She meant what she said. She never said anything vain to me. Uh, She would not say she was going to punish me and then not punish me if I disobeyed. Uh, Her words were true. So that truth is an amazing legacy to me. Completely true and never any silly threats. Uh, She was careful in her work. She expected me to be careful and to do a job well. Uh, If a task is once begun, never leave it till it's done, she would say. Be the labor great or small, do it well or not at all. Grammar and sentence structure were very important. Correct words, as Mark Twain said, the difference between the wrong word and the right word is like the difference between a lightning bug and lightning. I love that quote. Valerie Elliott Shepard, thanks. Later in this podcast, we're going to hear about one of Elizabeth's nicknames, the Velvet Brick. What is that about? Stay tuned.
Right now, Gateway to Joy and God Gave You That Story is the title. A few years ago, when I was living in Hamilton, Massachusetts, I heard that Corey Ten Boom was scheduled to speak at Gordon College, which is in the next town. I was thrilled and made up my mind to block that out on my calendar and get myself a ticket for the banquet. And I hoped very fervently that Corey Ten Boom would tell the story of her years in concentration camp. But then I thought, poor Corey, that's more than 30 years ago. I'm sure the whole world expects to hear that story. She must get rather sick of telling it. Maybe she'll talk about something else. Well, to my amazement and delight, she spoke about exactly that, the story of her capture and imprisonment in concentration camp in Germany. And afterwards, to my even greater amazement and delight, I was privileged to have tea with her several days later. And so I told her of my feelings, and I said, do you ever get tired of telling your story? Does it ever embarrass you to think that maybe your listeners will say, has Corey got nothing else to talk about? And she laughed, and she said, yes, She said, I have felt that way. And one day I spoke to the Lord about it. I said, Lord, I must have something fresh. And the Lord said, Corey, that is the story I gave you. You tell that story. Well, God has given you a story, too. Perhaps you won't have the opportunity to go all over the world and tell yours as Corey told hers. Maybe you won't write any books about it. But it's a story, and someday we may discover that yours was much more important than some of the stories which we have thought of as being the most important in God's sight. It says in the first chapter of Ephesians, In Christ, God chose us before the world was founded to be dedicated, to be without blemish in his sight, to be full of love. And he destined us, such was his will and pleasure, to be accepted as his sons through Jesus Christ, in order that the glory of his gracious gift, so graciously bestowed on us in the Beloved, might redound to his praise. I'm convinced that God's destiny for you and me is love. Sometimes it's much easier to see the hand of God in someone else's story than in our own. Do you find that difficulty? Can you look back on the story of your life and see the hand of God? Can you see his love in every chapter? I'm sure that some of you are listening to this and saying, every chapter? Hmm, if you knew my life, you wouldn't even suggest that the love of God was evident in every chapter. Is it easier for you to see his will at work in somebody else's life? When it's a complete book and the story is finished, perhaps it's easier. The pattern then begins to emerge, and it becomes understandable, at least to a point. That's one of the reasons why I love biographies. You can see the whole pattern from beginning to end, and you can understand in some measure the reasons for earlier events and how they led on in preparation to later events. It's not so easy when we look at the story of our own lives. I want to tell you the story of five men 
missionaries in Ecuador back in the 1950s. I was an intimate part of that story, having been the wife of one of those men. And my first book, Through Gates of Splendor, begins with two of them. I'd like to read you the first couple of pages of that book. The Santa Juana is underway, white stars breaking through a high mist, half moon, the deep burn of phosphorus running in the wake, long, easy rolling in the push of steady wind. It was hot in the little cabin of the freighter. Jim Elliott, who was later to become my husband, was writing in the old cloth-covered ledger he used for a diary. It was a night in February 1952. Pete Fleming, Jim's fellow missionary, sat at a second desk. Jim continued, All the thrill of boyhood dreams came on me just now outside, watching the sky die in the sea on every side. I wanted to sail when I was in grammar school and well remember memorizing the names of the sails from the Merriam-Webster's ponderous dictionary in the library. Now I'm actually at sea, as a passenger, of course, but at sea nevertheless, and bound for Ecuador. Strange, or is it, that childish hopes should be answered in the will of God for this now? We left our moorings at the outer harbor dock, San Pedro, California, at 2.06 today. Mom and Dad stood together, watching at the pier side. As we slipped away, Psalm 60, verse 12, came to mind, and I called back, Through our God we shall do valiantly. They wept some. I do not understand how God has made me. Joy, sheer joy and thanksgiving, fill and encompass me. I can scarcely keep from turning to Pete and saying, Brother, this is great. Or, We never had it so good. God has done and is doing all I ever desired, much more than I ever asked. Praise, praise to the God of heaven and to his Son, Jesus, because he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. I may boldly say, I will not fear. Jim Elliot laid down his pen. He was a young man of 25, tall and broad-chested, with thick brown hair and blue-gray eyes. He was bound for Ecuador, the answer to years of prayer for God's guidance concerning his life work. Some had thought it strange that a young man with his opportunities for success should choose to spend his life in the jungle among primitive peoples. Jim's answer, found in his diary, had been written a year before. My going to Ecuador is God's counsel, as is my leaving Betty. Betty was the name that he called me. And my refusal to be counseled by all who insist that I should stay and stir up the believers in the U.S., and how do I know it is his counsel? Yea, my heart instructeth me in the night seasons. How good, for I have known my heart is speaking to me for God. No visions, no voices, but the counsel of a heart which desires God. I had known Jim back when he was a student at Wheaton. I remember that he was one of the more visible students on the campus, what we used to call a BTO, a big-time operator, or a BMOC, big man on campus. Jim was the president of the Foreign Missions Fellowship and therefore considered a spiritual leader, a guy who used to go around grabbing friends and saying, hey, buddy, how come you're not going to the mission field? 
or in the dining hall line at times, he would grab somebody by the shoulder or the arm and he'd say, what did you get from the Lord this morning, sister? He was not only a spiritual leader, he was a campus clown, the sort of person that could be called upon without warning, and he would stand up and do some comedy, some reciting of Robert Service's poetry, such things as a face on the barroom floor or the shooting of Dan McGrew. He was also a wrestler, and he put down in his diary the reason why he went out for wrestling. He said, I wrestle solely for the strength and coordination of muscle tone that the body receives while working out, with the ultimate end, that of presenting a more useful body as a living sacrifice. This God knows, and even though he chose to allow it to be strained, the motive was for his glory and the faith he honors. Simplicity of heart and freedom from anxiety he expects of us and gives grace to have both. I think he had received some sort of a minor injury, and his mother was very worried about that, and so he gave her a similar explanation for his going out for wrestling. Besides being a spiritual leader and a campus clown and an athlete, he was also a good student. He wrote in a letter to his parents in 1947 something which reveals where his ambition lay. The Lord has given me a hunger for righteousness and piety that can alone be of himself. Such hungering he alone can satisfy, yet Satan would delude and cast up all sorts of other baubles, social life, a name renowned, a position of importance, scholastic attainment. What are these but the objects of the desire of the Gentiles whose cravings are warped and perverted? Surely they can mean nothing to the soul who has seen the beauty of Jesus Christ. No doubt you will hear of my receiving preliminary honors at school. They carry the same brand and will lie not long hence in the basement in a battered trunk beside the special gold B-pin with the ruby in it for which I studied four years at Benson. All is vanity below the sun and a striving after wind. Life is not here, but hid above with Christ in God, and therein I rejoice and sing as I think on such exaltation. He was a good student, conscientious, probably not a genius, but he studied hard, and he graduated with highest honor in classical Greek. And he wrote this, There is no such thing as attainment in this life. As soon as one arrives at a long-coveted position, he only jacks up his desire another notch or so and looks for higher achievement, a process which is ultimately suspended by the intervention of death. Life is truly likened to a rising vapor, coiling, evanescent, shifting. Originally aired in January 1989, entitled God Gave You That Story. I mentioned earlier that Elizabeth had an interesting nickname. Her friend, Donna Otto, tells us about the Velvet Brick. Well, I always have a prop when I speak. It's a velvet-covered brick. Can you see it? I carried it all the way from Arizona, where I live, and wrapped it in this black velvet because Elizabeth was a velvet-covered brick to me. (laughs) 
and she and I both um, valued the words of Howard Butt, who wrote in the early 70s about this concept of being a velvet-covered brick, and that Jesus was like that, a brick with velvet around it. She was gracious and compassionate to me when I dare say I was a nuisance. She always stood for the same truth, the core of who she was, how she loved her only daughter and her son-in-law and these eight grannies, grands, and their spouses. She loved them fiercely, and nothing could separate her from those things. Peter Kreeft, who was one of the authors that Elizabeth introduced me to, says these powerful words, and I know that's a concept you've heard before, but Peter tells us in the book of 1 Peter, let me remind you of what you already know. And Peter Kreeft's words are like that. We are dwarfs standing on the shoulders of giants. We see further than the ancients, not because we are taller than they, but because we stand on their shoulders. And I know for myself, I stand on Elizabeth's shoulders, and I believe all of us in this room do. The psalmist reminds us that one generation shall praise thy works and shall declare thy mighty deeds to the next generation. And Elizabeth did that to me. Yes, or and or, because I wasn't as fast a student as she was. Ah, the velvet brick. Thanks, Donna. That was Donna Otto, a friend of Elizabeth. Now, here's another Gateway to Joy program. It's entitled, An Avenue of Obedience. In our last talk, we began the story of five American missionaries in Ecuador, South America, a story which took place back in the 1950s and about which I wrote my first book called Through Gates of Splendor. I was telling you a little bit about the man who later became my husband. His name was Jim Elliott. And today, I'd like you to learn a little bit about his buddy, Pete Fleming, the one that God gave in answer to Jim's prayer for a companion to go to the mission field with. He had been praying for some time that God would give him a fellow worker, believing that in the New Testament it was God's will to send people out two by two. And although his mother and some other people suggested to him that the two might be a married couple, that was not in accord with what Jim thought God was leading him to do. That was to be a single missionary as long as jungle work might require singleness. And so he was praying that God would give him a buddy who was also single. And in 1951, I think it was, when one of his hopes, a man that he sort of had his eye on as being a possible companion, got married, then Jim began to pray for another And in August of that year, 1951, he saw an old friend, Pete Fleming, who had just obtained his master's degree and was looking for God's direction for his life work. This is what Jim wrote to Pete. I would certainly be glad if God persuaded you to go with me, but if the harvest chief does not move you, I hope you remain at home. To me, Ecuador is an avenue of obedience to the simple word of Christ. There is room for me there, and I am free to go. Of this I am sure. He will lead you too, and not let you miss your signs. The sound of gentle stillness after the thunder and wind have passed will be the ultimate word from God. 
tarry long for it. Remember the words of Amy Carmichael. The vows of God are on me. I may not stay to play with shadows or pluck earthly flowers till I my work have done and rendered up account. A simple word, that's the hard part. When we're looking for some simple word from God and many things come in to confuse us and make it seem very complicated. Jim's call to missionary work was to him a simple word, the simple word of Jesus, go into all the world and preach the gospel. For them, Jim and Pete, the literal going into all the world was going to Ecuador. For many, living for God in a radically distinct and noticeably different way than that of the rest of the world is obedience to Jesus' command. In the place where we are, it doesn't necessarily require that we go a thousand miles away from where we are to preach the gospel, to live the gospel. For most of us, it's not preaching, it's not street corner evangelism necessarily, but it is a making visible of the truth of God in the place where we are. This buddy of Jim's, Pete Fleming, was born in 1928 in Seattle. In a Christian family, he grew up, and when he was 13 years old, he made a public profession of faith through the testimony of a blind evangelist. Pete Fleming won letters in basketball and golf. He was a very studious type, graduated as valedictorian from his high school class, but said that his anchorage was in the Bible. He went from high school to the University of Washington where he studied philosophy, and those studies almost caused his faith to founder. Again, he came back to his anchorage in the Bible, and before he graduated, became president of the University Christian Fellowship. He received a master's degree in literature in 1951, and I want to read to you a letter that he wrote to a missionary in Ecuador by the name of Dr. Tidmarsh. He said, Since your visit, I have been very much in prayer about going to Ecuador. In fact, I have never prayed so much before the Lord about anything. Jim and I have exchanged several letters in which I told him of the increased desire to go forth and of the scriptures which God seemingly had brought to mind to confirm it. My thinking, both in and outside of the scriptures, was directed toward the stringency of Christ's words to his disciples when he sent them forth. I send you forth as sheep among wolves. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that taketh not up his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. It has seemed that the severe requirements of a difficult field like Ecuador are matched on a spiritual level by the severe requirements placed on real disciples. Ecuador, as it seems, is a God-given opportunity to place God's principles and promises to the extreme test. This door seems to be opening at a time when I was looking to the Lord regarding the future, and thus is the Lord's answer to my prayers. 
And so Pete made his decision, partly, I think, because of Jim's suggestion, certainly because of the leading of the Holy Spirit, partly because of the needs which Dr. Tidmarsh had outlined to him in his correspondence, needs of Quechua Indians in the eastern jungle of Ecuador on a station which Dr. Tidmarsh had had to abandon because of an accident that his wife had suffered. And so it was that Jim's prayer was answered as well. Pete Fleming was the man that God gave him to accompany him to Ecuador. I'd like you to note the steps of obedience. First of all, there was Pete's commitment to Christ. Sometimes I talk with young people who are desperately seeking God's help in making decisions. And I think they sometimes imagine that God is some kind of magic that you can tune into when you really need him, and he doesn't really have to make a whole lot of difference in the rest of your life. And so when I talk to young people like this, my first question is usually, what kind of commitment have you already made to Jesus Christ? Have you presented your body as a living sacrifice? And very often the response that I get is a glazed stare. Commitment? Commitment to Jesus Christ? Um, why, um, mm, well, no, I, I mean, like, I, I just really don't think I've ever done that. I mean, like, you know, um, hmm. And so we begin from that point. And that's where Pete Fleming had begun, at the age of 13, making a lifetime commitment to Jesus Christ as Master and Lord. And then that commitment, which may be a crisis, must be followed by a process. Day by day, week in and week out, month in and month out, year in and year out, following the shepherd. And we see Pete Fleming moving from high school, where he got honors, to college, where his faith almost foundered, and then he went back to that anchorage in the Bible. Obedience one step at a time. A master's degree in literature seemed to be the next step, but before he could plunge himself into the world of academia, Jim Elliott came along, grabbed him by the arm, and said, Hey, buddy, how come you're not going to the mission field? And one thing and another got his attention so that he committed himself to a life of missionary work. The recognition of the claims and the cost of discipleship were among the steps of obedience. And he used his head. We don't find Pete Fleming or Jim Elliott hearing voices or seeing visions or having pillars of fire or stars of Bethlehem or the handwriting on the wall. The brains that God has given us are certainly one of the means by which we are to discern his will. You use your brains to examine the circumstances. Why was it that both these men were corresponding with Dr. Tidmarsh in Ecuador? Why was it that the need fit the circumstances of their lives and the gifts that God had given them were appropriate for the job that was about to be theirs. There was counsel from godly friends. There was an open door. There was an ab the ability to meet a need. And a good many of the missionaries that I've spoken to and asked, how did God call you to the mission field, have told me that it was simply a matter of putting two and two together. 
I saw a need. I was seeking the will of God. I saw that there was a way in which I might possibly, with God's help, meet that need, and I was willing to go. I don't know what avenue of obedience may be yours today. It may be some seemingly insignificant thing that God is asking you to do. It may be a very difficult decision which will change your life. What are the circumstances? Have you asked for godly counsel and telling him you'd do anything he says? Originally aired in January 1989, that was An Avenue of Obedience. The Elizabeth Elliott Gateway to Joy podcast is produced in cooperation with the Bible Broadcasting Network, Charlotte, North Carolina. It's been so good to have you with us on the podcast today. As Elizabeth Elliott reminded us, simply doing the next thing in front of us can make all the difference as we face the challenges of even the darkest day. Until we meet again, may God remind you daily you are loved with an everlasting love. And underneath, what? Well, that's right, are the everlasting arms. Thank you.